0: It's going to be Acts chapter uh, 3, we're going to look at verses 1 to 26 for a sermon I have creatively um, titled, Peter's Second Sermon. This is after the healing of the lame man in the temple, and we read this. While he, meaning the lame man, was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety he was made to walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered over to be disowned and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disown the Holy One and Righteous One and asked for a murder to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it's the name of Jesus, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has, been, has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you have acted in ignorance just as your uh, rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of his prophets, that the Christ, his Christ uh, would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, in the, uh order that the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he might send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Moses said, "The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like unto me, from your brethren to him you shall give heed to everything He says, and it shall be that every soul that does not heed the words of uh, the, <clears throat> He the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people, and likewise all the prophets who had spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophet and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from his wicked ways. You know, when it comes to uh, music artists and bands, some have been very productive recording one hit song after another. Think about uh, Elvis Presley, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. The highly successful singer Bob Dylan has been writing and performing songs now for 64 years. But did you know he has never had one song go to number one on the charts? Now, many artists were not so long-lasting. They were just flashes in the pan recording what is known as one-hit wonders. These are songs that were very successful for the artists who sang them, but they never recorded anything of note uh, other than these one-hit wonders. Well, I came across a list of such songs from various decades. You want to hear some of them? From the 50s, Earth Angel by the Penguins. Did you know that Penguins can sing? I didn't. How about Be bop lula That was by Gene Vincent and his Blue Caps. Or Chantilly Lace, the big bopper sang that. He's the man who died in a plane crash, along with other rockers, Buddy Holly and Richie Valens. In the 60s, Bobby Pickett sang Monster Mash. It was a graveyard smash. Or what about Keep on Dancing by the Gentries? Or Black is Black, I Want My Baby Back? Or Ballad of the Green Berets. That was performed by Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler in 1966 in the middle of the Vietnam War. In the 70s, we have songs like Ride, Captain Ride by Edison Lighthouse. Or Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes. Or how about this one? Brandy, you're a fine girl, what a good wife you would be, but my life, my lover, and my lady... Is the sea? It's a story about a sailor and the girl who wants to marry him. You get to the '80s, lip sync, sang a song called "Funky Town." About another one, "Just the Two of Us," or "99 Luftballons." That was recorded in both English and German. In the '90s, "Rico Suave" <laughs> by Corona, "The Rhythm of the Night," and who can forget that all-time great? Possum Kingdom by the Toadies. I can't forget it, but neither can I remember it because I've never heard of it before. In the 2000s, the Ketchup Song. That was sung by a band called Lost Ketchup. (laughs) For some songs, you wonder how they ever got recorded at all. How about Chasing Cars by the Snow Patrol? Doesn't it seem like it should have been performed by a band called the Hound Dogs? How about Broccoli? That was a song. Or Panda. I guess you can sing about anything. One song was entitled, All Time Low. Perhaps they had reached the bottom with their song. I want you to think about it, though. If we weren't talking about songs, but instead about sermons, I think you'd have to put Jonah in the category of one-hit wonder. He preached only one sermon to the people of Nineveh, but all the people repented, including the king. Peter, on the other hand, if he had preached nothing but that sermon on Pentecost, it would still be one of the greatest one-time wonders. But we find here a second sermon, a powerful one, that not only led to the conversion of large numbers of people, but also got him and John thrown into jail. Now, Peter's second sermon, that's what we want to look at today. And to do so, we're going to pray and then get in the text. Father, God, i got to pray for grace and mercy. Peter spoke to the people in that day for their need to repent. And that's true for our day as well. I pray that you'd open up our mind and our hearts uh, to understand the text and to receive it and to change our life as a result of what we hear. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, we're in the Easter season, uh, and that always comes around the time of uh, Passover, which the Jews celebrate. Now, Historically, Passover has been a time of celebration, but also a time of apprehension for Jewish people. That's because uh, they celebrate the fact that God has delivered, had delivered their ancient uh, ancestors from the land of Egypt and the oppression of Pharaoh. But it's also the case that around that time every year, They would hear the accusations of being Christ killers and blood libels. In the Middle Ages, many so-called Christians not only held the Jews guilty for the death of Christ, but they believed that Jews at this time would kidnap Christian boys, kill them, and then mix their blood in with the matzah to make wafers for the Passover ceremony. Are the Jews today guilty of the death of Jesus? No, not for his death but they are re- guilty for rejecting Jesus as their Messiah, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. But that's true for any non-Christian who's heard the good news about Jesus and yet still refuses to believe so as to be saved. Well, it's true that not the, the Jews today are not held guilty for Jesus' death, nor were all the Jews at the time of the New Testament held guilty. It is also the case that Peter and Paul and the other apostles held the Jews of Jerusalem guilty for the death of Christ in the part that they played into it. But even for those who had blood on their hands in the death of their Messiah, Peter nevertheless holds out the offer of forgiveness for their sins and reconciliation with God through this Christ whom they had rejected. So how does this sermon break down? It comes in two parts. The first thing we find is a stinging indictment, a stinging indictment, and that's verses 11 to 16. And next we find a tender appeal, and that's 17 to 26. A stinging indictment. Well, they finally did it. President Trump has been indicted. They've been looking for that for, oh, what, six years now? The Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is seeking this indictment, and he got it. Legal charges against Trump related to an affair he is alleged to have had with a woman named Stormy Daniels. Now, the Federal Department of Justice looked into it and decided not to press the charges, and even though it's beyond the statutes of limitations, the DA seems intent on pressing his case against the former president. Now, the indictment that Peter makes here is going to come not after a press conference in front of a courthouse, but after the healing of the lame man before the crowds gathered around John and Peter. We read starting in verse 11 again. While he, meaning the lame man, was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our power or piety We made him walk. You know, they say that all pastors need to be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. Well, Peter was ready to preach, preach Christ to those who were gathered around him. But before he makes his uh, case against his listeners, he starts with a disclaimer. Peter wants them to be clear on the fact that this amazing miracle, though it was done by his hand, was certainly not done by his power or because of some superior piety that he possessed. You see, the danger for anyone involved in ministry, for anyone being used by God is to try to steal God's glory by somehow taking credit for what's been accomplished. Proverbs 27, or 21 says this, the crucible is for silver and furnace for the gold, but each man is tested by the praise given to him. In other words, your response to praise reveals what you really like. And the true servants of the Lord always want to give credit to God for anything that's accomplished through them. I mean, think about Joseph, when he was brought before Pharaoh to interpret his dreams. They hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon, and and when uh, he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, but no one can interpret it. I've heard that it's said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh and said, it's not me. God will give Pharaoh the favorable answer. It was the same with Daniel when he was pulled before Nebuchadnezzar to interpret his dream. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mysteries about which the king has inquired, neither wise men nor conjurer nor magician nor diviners are able to declare to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who has revealed these mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your, your dream and your visions in your mind while you're on their bed. And then he goes on to explain Moses was the humblest man on the face of the earth, we're told. And yet, just on one occasion, he stole God's glory. He said, here now, you rebels, do you, do Aaron and I have to bring forth ro- water from this rock? And he struck it. He was only supposed to speak to it. That one slip-up of pride cost Moses his chance to enter the Promised Land. In Isaiah 42.8, sa- God says this, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Psalm 115 One should be the prayer of every Christian, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Whatever you do for God, you want to give all the glory and the honor and the praise to him. As servants of Jesus, you should be like the man in the back in a circus with the spotlight shining it down at the center ring where Jesus is. And as Peter shines the spotlight on Jesus, he wants his listeners to see the darkness of their own hearts in in their complicity in the death of their Messiah. So he begins his stinging indictment in verse 13. Look what it says. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Now let's unpack this for a moment. The power to perform this miracle did not come from Zeus nor Apollo, but from God. Not from the gods of the Greeks or the Romans, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of their fathers. The true God, the one revealed in the Bible, the God who stretched out the heavens And split the sea. The God who delivered Israel from bondage and brought them into the land. This God and no other God is the one who had the power to make this lame man walk. But that power was available because of and channeled through Jesus, his servant. Jesus was not just another servant of the Lord, like Moses or David Elijah. He was the servant of the Lord, the one prophesied in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. It says in Isaiah 52:13 to 15, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be highly lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any other, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what, they had, what had not been told to them, they will see. And what they had not heard, They will understand. Now, I want you to notice the contrast here between God's evaluation of Jesus and their horrible treatment of him. They didn't just roll some drunk in the park. This is the servant of the Lord that God has glorified. This is the one that they delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. I mean, knowing that Jesus was innocent, Pilate wanted to let him go. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king! So they cried out, Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So they handed him over to be crucified. John nineteen, fourteen to 16. In Matthew's account, it tells us that when Pilate washed his hands and said, I'm free from the blood of this man, the crowd shouted back, his blood be upon us and our children. Peter tells his listeners here in verse 14, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you instead. I mean, given a choice between Pilate releasing Jesus and a murderer named Barabbas, they said, give us Barabbas. But they put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact, Peter said, to which we are witnesses. Remember when Potiphar had Joseph thrown into prison? When his wife accused him of attempted rape? By the way, so much for Believe All Women, huh? Can you imagine the soul-chilling heart-stopping fear that Potiphar must have felt when he saw this former servant that he threw in prison rise to second-in-command in all of Egypt? But the dread that Potiphar felt was nothing compared to the dread these people felt when they heard the words of Peter's stinging indictment, where he charges them with disowning the Holy and Righteous One. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the Holy One is a title for God. If Jesus is the Holy One, Jesus is the Righteous One, They've shown themselves to be supremely unholy and unrighteous in their wicked part that they played in Christ's death. God glorified his servant, Jesus, by raising him from the dead. This prince of life, and Peter and John said, we're witnesses of this. So like Nathan confronting King David, Peter stuck his finger in their collective chest and said, thou art the man. Need proof? that Jesus is this servant? Look at exhibit A, verse 16. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man, whom you see and know. The faith which comes through him has given him perfect health in the presence of all. My, those words must have stung like a scorpion sting. Their conscience must have sizzled like a fajita plate of a Chili's restaurant. Ouch. But like any good preacher, Peter knows that you have to use not only a carrot, or not only a stick, but also a carrot. I mean, we have to thunder threats of judgment because that's what's in store if you don't repent. But we also have to apply the balm of Gilead, for in the final analysis, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. And evidently, Peter sensed something of the conviction that had come upon him, because after the stinging indictment, he begins a tender appeal. And this starts in verse 17. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See at the portal, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Sinner, oh sinner, come home. Oh, for the wonderful love he has promised, promised for you and for me. Though we have sinned, he has mercy and pardon, pardon for you and for me. Come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Sinner, O sinner, come home. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of of us all to fall on him. That first line is true for everyone, Jew and Gentile. That second line proves true for anyone, Jew or Gentile, who turns to God through his servant, Jesus. You know, I had a boss when I worked in a restaurant a number of years ago. And at times he would have to confront employees with something that they were doing wrong and something that if they didn't stop, he was going to have to get rid of them. And he uh, told me he always referred to those as, his, as the come to mo- uh, Jesus moments. Come to Jesus moments. They really weren't come to Jesus moments, but this one most certainly was. Now notice the tone, how it changes starting in verse 17. When he calls back, Peter calls back these wayward Jews back to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hear here the tender appeal that comes ultimately from Jesus himself through the lips of Peter. And he says this And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all his prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. You've heard that phrase ignorance is no excuse. Well, it was not an excuse for these people either, but Peter saw it at least as a mitigating factor. You see, at the time that they rejected Jesus, they might not have fully understood the enormity of their crime, and they certainly didn't understand that the sovereign God of Israel was using even their rejection of the Messiah to fulfill his plan of redemption through the death of Jesus. But praise God, he did go to the cross as a sacrifice for sins. And God has accepted that sacrifice, and that's why Jesus was raised from the dead, to show that it was acceptable. He says, Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow, that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Isaiah 118, God says to Israel, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be whiter than snow. Though they are like crimson, they will be like wool. But, you know, that requires that we repent. Acknowledge our sins and turn from them. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sins. Peter tells them that they, Israel, must repent, he says in verse 19, in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God has spoken through the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Do you remember standing on the hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem? Jesus lamented. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and yet you were unwilling Behold, your house has been left to you desolate. For I say to you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus will not return with blessings to Jerusalem unless and until they acknowledge him as their Messiah and greet him with cries of, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And oh, what a day, glorious day that will be. Now from the carrot, he turns back again to the stick for a moment to warn the people of what's at stake in their response to what they had just heard. Quoting from Exodus 33, 11, he said this, Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it'll be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall utterly be destroyed from among the people. Hebrews 1, 1-3 says this, God, after he spoke long ago to our fathers, in the prophets, in many ways and in many portions, in these last days he's spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he, this Son, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Remember when Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration? And all of a sudden they're there, you know, they're half asleep, the disciples are, and then this cloud comes and Jesus turns bright as white. And it's interesting because you read the different uh, the writers in the Gospels, how they try to describe it. Bright as the sun, and bright as this, bright as that. And, and one of them says, his clothes were whiter than any laundromen could wash <laughs> them. he never experienced anything like that. You know, Peter, he always opened his mouth saying things he shouldn't say. So, well, Lord, this is great that we're here. How about I build like three shelters for you? We'll camp out here. But then a cloud enveloped him. And there was a voice that came out of the cloud that said, this is my son. Listen to him. Peter was talking to the Jews in Jerusalem, but I'm talking to you sitting here today and to those listening over the internet. Have you and are you listening to Jesus, God's son? You can ignore him in life. You're going to even be able to ignore him possibly in death but you will not be able to ignore him after death and certainly not on the day of judgment. Listen to him. Verse 24, And likewise all the prophets who spoke from Samuel and his successors onward have announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant, which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised him up, his servant, and sent him to bless you by turning each one of you from your wicked ways. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. Israel is the chosen nation. The Jews are the chosen people. It's right, was right, and is right that the gospel message goes first to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But whether we Jew, we or Jews are Gentiles. God's goal in sending Jesus, his servant, is to bless us by having us turn each of us from our wicked ways. Now, most people, when they think of the wrongs, they do. If they think about it at all, it's primarily about what we do to other people. But biblically speaking, sin is first and foremost the way we mistreat God. And we tend to think even along those lines that it's basically the wrongs that we do. But the Bible makes it clear our greater sin is what we fail to do. Listen to the words of John Piper as he defines sin. He asks the question, what is sin? Listen carefully. It says, it's when the glory of God is not honored, and the holiness of God is not revered. It's when the greatness of God is not admired, and the power of God is not praised. It's when the truth of God is not sought, and the wisdom of God is not esteemed. The beauty of God is not treasured. And the goodness of God is not savored. The faithfulness of God is not trusted. The commandments of God are not obeyed. The justice of God is not respected. The wrath of God is not feared. The presence of God is not prized. The person of God is not loved. That is sin. And so if you're thinking, you know, I don't do anything too wrong. Yeah, but have you done everything that's right? In other words, have you treated God the way he deserves to be treated as your creator? Remember the two fundamental sins that Paul said humanity's guilty of? They neither honored God as God, nor did they give him thanks. I still remember years ago sitting with the confirmation class, and one of the kids who was kind of a troublemaker in the class, I loved him, prayed for him and whatnot. I asked him once, I said, Have you ever thanked God for anything in your entire life? I mean, like food, or, you know, the fact that you get to go hunting, or you got a cool truck, or anything. Have you ever thanked him for anything? And he said, No. No. Everything he's ever enjoyed. Everything you've ever enjoyed. Even if you're not a Christian, came from God. He never bothered to turn back and say, well, thank you. Man, even if you're not a Christian, for the common grace that he's given you, can't you thank him? And I see this when we, do have, when we have our Thanksgiving celebration. I've been encouraged because over the years, it used to be, well, I'm thankful for my family and stuff like that. But generally, it was kind of shallower things. But over the years, I'm hearing people say, I'm thankful for what I'm learning. I'm thankful for the hard things I've gone through. I'm thankful for the word of God. I'm thankful for all this. But I notice with the non-Christians there, just about the only thing they say they're thankful for is the family. And they don't say, I'm thankful to God for my family. Because they just can't bring themselves to thank God for anything. Think about it. If you don't think about God in life, why should he think about you in your death? What if God treats you on judgment day the way you've treated him through all of your life? Wouldn't it be just? Wouldn't it be right? And I want to warn those of you who are non-Christians here who've heard the word of God. Do you think you'll have less judgment or more judgment for having sit and heard sermon after sermon after sermon and shrug your shoulders and say, I'm not into that. Peter's listeners on that day, like all of us today, are guilty of failing to love, honor, and obey God as we should. That's why Paul says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Added to that guilt was this specific crime of rejecting Pilate's offer to release Jesus and demanding instead that he be crucified. And yet despite all their sins and that great crime in rejecting the Messiah, God, through Peter, is offering them full forgiveness and pardon for their sins and crimes. God wanted to bless them by turning every one of them from their wicked ways. We must repent of our sins. Have you turned from your wicked ways? I mean, this is true even after we become Christians. We have to turn constantly from our wicked ways. That passage in Isaiah 53 that I read said, All we like sheep have gone astray, each has turned to his own way. Now your own way may be an immoral, self-indulgent way, or it might be a self-righteous, moral way. Or it might be just a callous, careless, indifferent way. But what matters most is it's your way. Peter wanted the same thing from his listeners of his second sermon that he wanted from those who heard his first one. For sinners to turn from their wicked ways and turn back to God through Christ Jesus that they might be reconciled with him and receive eternal life. Now, I started with titles from songs. I want to end with a title of a song. It was done in the 60s by a band called The Birds. Based on Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it was titled Turn, Turn, Turn. And it had these words To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time for every purpose under heaven. Now is the time to turn to God through Christ. Now is the season for salvation. Turn to him day. And I want to warn particularly those of you who are young. The overwhelming majority of people who get saved get saved before they're 18 years of age. I remember seeing a guy talk one time, and he said there was a conference where they had all kinds of people there. And they just asked everyone to stand up. said, everybody stand up. And now I want you to sit down if you became a Christian before age five, before age 10, before age 15. And he, and he just kept going up. Do you know when he got to about 65, there was only a 1,000 people, there was only about 15 people were standing? You think you're more likely to come to Christ after you've sinned a whole lot more? After hardening your heart more? After blowing it off more? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. There's 124,000 people who die every single day. What percentage of you think thought they were going to die that day? Not very many. but they died, and they entered eternity, and the majority of them without Christ. Don't be one of them. Today's the day of salvation. Respond to the offer of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in God. I remember hearing these things when I was younger, when I wasn't a Christian. It made make me feel convicted of my sins, but I didn't want to give up my life. I wanted to run things my own way. I wasn't going to bow to you. But Lord, then I made a profession of faith, but it wasn't real. And it wasn't until I heard John MacArthur preaching that I realized I was a hypocrite and I actually got saved. Father, God, I pray for the people here. Even the non-Christians here are well taught. They know the scripture, Lord. It's in their head but is it in their hearts? And Father, even for those of us who have been saved, do we not have to turn regularly and constantly from our sins and from ourself so that Jesus can be our righteousness and we can be pleasing to you? Father, I pray for grace and mercy. I pray that you'd work in the hearts of each person here so that not one who hears this message perishes. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.